You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, welcoming you not only to this radio broadcast, but also to the vodcast, which, once again, let me remind viewers, is available for download every single day on this broadcast at CorbettReport.com, so you can watch the video of this radio program, and I'm uh, doing my best to try to incorporate more video uh, into those uh, videos so that there's something more to look at than my ugly mug. So once again, I'll remind people to to check out CorbettReport.com and to subscribe to the feeds so that you can get all of these radio broadcasts and vodcasts and uh, interviews and podcasts, etc., delivered straight to your podcatcher of choice. But on that note, tonight we're going to be uh, doing the Friday Night Highlight Routine, but we're going to be highlighting some things that you haven't seen yet. And tonight's topic is China, which I don't think I need to elaborate too much on as being an extremely important nexus and focus of 21st century geopolitics. I think everyone understands how important China is, and probably, I imagine, most of the people out there also understand how it has been self-consciously been built up to be the the model for the New World Order, as George Soros has specifically referred to it uh, as on a number of occasions now. So uh, we're going to start taking a look at China, because once again, no matter how it's been built up or engineered to be the model for the 21st century for the would-be ruling dictators of the New World Order, it still is important for us to at least understand something about China and its culture and its people and what's happening there, because once again, knowledge is power, and if we don't have the knowledge of what it is we're facing, we'll never be able to face it. So tonight we're going to be actually dipping into some highlights of some things that, once again, you have not seen out there yet. This is going to be some footage that comes from my visit to China earlier this year. People might remember back in February I took some time off this broadcast to go to China to do some interviews for GRTV, that's Global Research TV, at grtv.ca. And I'm putting together a documentary project about China and China Chinese-American relations and how uh, this is likely to play out in the coming years. And unfortunately, that documentary is still in the process of coming along. But in the meantime, I'm going to share with you some of the raw footage of a couple of the interviews that I conducted. In fact, I conducted quite a few, uh, almost a dozen interviews. But we'll just take a look at a couple tonight. And uh, first of all, we're going to listen to Kiel Chung, who's a professor at Tsinghua University, which is basically the Chinese equivalent of Harvard or whatever uh, analogy you want to use. It's a very prestigious uh, and well-regarded institution. It's also, uh, Dr. Chung is also the uh, editor, the English language editor of April Media, which is a website that is based in Beijing, but uh, it originally started out as anti-CNN.com in the wake of some, shall we say, highly dubious reporting by CNN about the Chinese-Tibet relations back in 2008, 2009. There were some uh, very spurious reports that uh, that have been exposed since then about uh, uh, um, Buddhist monks in, in Tibet and the protests there and Chinese army crackdowns, etc. Well, anti-CNN.com was formed in the wake of that, and eventually it grew into April Media. And so we're going to be talking to Dr. Kiel Chung. He, he's going to talk about American and Chinese cultures and how they intersect and uh, the relations between them. A very interesting topic, talking about cultural imperialism. 
After that, we're going to uh, listen to an interview that once again was conducted with me by RT uh, earlier this month. And they were asking some questions about China and Iran and the oil sanctions and American uh, politics with regards to that. Once again, this is an interview that was conducted uh, by RT that, as far as I know, never aired and was uh, never never broadcast in any form. So I have the uh, the video footage from my side. Why don't I show it to you? So uh, we'll we'll listen to that, and then after that, we're going to listen to an interview with someone called Jason Lee, uh, netizen, a very young Chinese. Uh, uh, politically active person he's very interesting and he, he talks about a wide range of subjects so we're going to dip into the highlights uh, here from from my chinese trip and from this rt interview so i hope you'll stay with us and once again you can check out the video of this at corbettreport.com hang on right there we'll be right back after these messages Because I am uh, Korean, meaning East Asian, back the, the, the East Asian, and at the same time I lived and resided and again gone, gone through my master's and PhD and work experience a quarter century. And I lived in South Korea until age 27, and I went to U.S. 28. I back to Korea one year at age already 55, and then I'm here, you know, 52, 3, and then I'm here now six, seven years. And so because of that, the, my own the tri-cultural, trilingual, or the backgrounds, uh, I may say from that background, America, as you said, uh, I, I often say, because of my, the, you know, original, the, the profession, my, my origin, my background is I'm a United Methodist clergy, senior pastor, and, and I began my first professional job in the States as a university chaplain at University of Maryland College Park when I met Michel, Michel in, that I was then still the, the pastor. Uh, so I had a, a, a privilege to get into deeper of deeper the the down to bottom down to earth to the all the way up to the higher level of the American society uh, because of my university background because of my white church pastor for five years and and all sorts of backgrounds America American public in general might be the the least educated. A national population in the world in terms of their understanding of the world, in terms of their uh, correct objective understanding of the world. Uh, in that sense, their level of understanding, correct or objective understanding is, is so, so poor. Not because they are incapable, but because of the system, the American, 
the media, as you just mentioned, the public, the mainstream media, or even the public education, the school education, do not tell the whole story. Starting way back to five centuries ago, the 1492, Christopher Columbus, the you know the, the the Native American genocide history, they do not tell the whole story. They do not tell the whole story of the black slave trade history until you know the the twentieth century. The what U.S. has done in terms of its military interventions and wars, and starting with Korea and Vietnam, now. You know, in, in at this moment, Afghanistan and Iraq. So the public, American public, are out of true picture. The the general public has has not been told with the full truth or the whole whole story. So as a result, even if they are the the most advanced, the capitalist free quote unquote the market society, the general public. Unfortunately, has become considered the least educated in terms of their understanding or the, the the correct objective understanding of the world population. And having said that, <clears throat> there the image of the of China. I think it's the same issue. The image of Korea, image of Japan, image of Black people in, for example, in United States, or their image of non the white population in the United States, you know, it's a it's the same 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 issue. Meaning, there's a there's a the how would you call it? Uh, for example, he, about China, it's a demonization of China. The is a varying degrees. Sometimes very severe, willful the demonization. Sometimes less the you know severe demonization of the North Korean leadership or the DPRK the, the population or demonization of Iran for example, demonization of Venezuela, Chavez or any nation dare to challenge American power often become demonized and and. And then, and then after that, if that nation is not capable to, to defend themselves, then they're wiped off. China has been demonized, you know, for, since 1949. And now China is open society in, in, in reform and open doors, open, opening door policy and has made them really open to. I think the Chinese population has become a, a one of the top global travelers. Before it was Japanese. Now the Chinese people have much more money. They do travel so many, so much. The China in South Korea, for example, the number one, the largest population from overseas to come to travel to Seoul, South Korea is the Chinese population. I think it's same as to other countries as well. Again, American, the general public's the understanding of China. I may say the far from the real picture, far from the reality. In order to uh, build up a the U.S.-China, China-U.S. friendly relationship, I think the 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 the, the United States media, the the mainstream media, the public education system, 
should re re-educate their population of the other end of the world and the other the other cultures uh, with more, more much more open-minded and, and and respecting the differences between the cultures and languages, and then the probably the genuine sense of the friendly uh, the relations between the nations, not only U.S. and China, but also with any nations that we may may come to arrive. Well, of course, you and I know that that uh, that, that process is, is it would be good and, and nurturing and, and healthy for, for the good of the globe, but of course it, it is not good for those in, in control of the current <laughs> yes. imperialist system that want to, to, to do the brainwashing. So that obviously brings up the, uh, the idea of how is that accomplished. And I think one of the ways that we've seen in recent years the, the explosion of online media right. has a potential for circumventing the entire cultural imperialist paradigm. Right. So perhaps you could speak to that. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned just now, my background was uh, the theological, the philosophical backgrounds. And though I, my whole life as a Korea activist, and speak internet later, anti-imperialist, the political, the grassroots organizers around the world, uh, but I have not been exposed to, I had not been uh, exposed to quote unquote media world until <laughs> I was called into Tsinghua University School of Journalism and Communication uh, all of a sudden after I I've been invited to many number of schools in China many different institutions to speak in the last six seven years and then I was there the three four times to give my presentation and speeches and then I was invited to the School of Journalism and Communication as the visiting professor now I'm, I think I'm becoming a an expert on media issue after three and a half years. Independent media, or I call it the alternative media movement, or the grassroots media, global media movement. I think the the future humanity, the, the one of the most crucial ways in the in which to future humanity may find some a a working solution uh, to build a better society or to prepare the population so that the day the the together to work together to build the future the better future for everybody is this in, in the internet uh, using internet the, the 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 web media we call in, in the independent media movement uh knowing the 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 media deception the the chomsky speaks the the manufacturing consent manufactured consent media deception lies and misinformation disinformation and the 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 false flags, the, you know, events, you know, many now, you know, have the last 10 years, the 9-11, uh, before that, uh, the, 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 um, I mean, many, many false flag, the, the incidents and events, even in South Korea, the 210, the Cheonan, the sinking incident, uh, and, and again, that without having independent grassroots alternative media 
only the, the world population only have the information delivered through the mainstream media, which we call now corporate the wrong media, which has become globally monopolized. Now the, the media, the, 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 the lectures we call the Big Five, the Fox TV owned by the Rupert Murdoch, the news corporation, the global, the, the, the media empire, is one of the five. The, the big five literally owns whole global, the globe, the quote-unquote mainstream media. And no matter what, the five, the big guys, uh, make a globally organized, globally cooperating, and they're globally sharing the media monopoly, and so they may say they call it media empire. We are dealing with this global media empire. You know it's time to get the bastards, prosecutors, Freemasons, and all the people in the shadows, as you see us, that's the place. The hour of illumination, you and not known, many and Oh, that's great, I can hear it clearly. Thank you very much, Mr. Corbett, for agreeing to answer these several questions against, uh, questions about China. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's start if you don't mind. Sure, let's go. Well, first of all, well, the United States was going to impose sanctions on those countries which continue to import, to import Iranian oil, but China and Singapore and other significant importers of Iranian oil were soon exempted from this list, according to Hillary Clinton, because they had significantly reduced their crude oil purchases from Iran. So, in fact, top Chinese officials announced that the oil supplies from Iran stayed at the same level, and statistics show that uh, oil imports even rebounded. So, in your opinion, who to believe in this situation? I think that uh, we have to take the the U.S.'s side of this with a grain of salt because I think they've tried to bite off more than they can chew with this uh, and the EU as well with their institution of the oil import uh, sanctions and embargoes. I think they've tried to uh, to foster some sort of international consensus on 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 getting uh, Iranian Iranian oil off of the market, but it just hasn't really coalesced that way. And there's been a lot of ways to get around all of the sanctions that have been imposed, even on the insurance for the uh, the shipping of the the oil uh, to to China, for example, or to Japan. There's been ways for them to get around those sanctions as well. So it's really been a very ineffective program. And I think as a way of saving face, the United States doesn't want to come out and admit that. They want to instead just say, oh, well, we, we will allow China, for example, to circumvent these rules because they've they've done enough to uh, to hurt Iran. So I think it's a it's a question of diplomatic saving face in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, why do you think the US, United States took these provocative steps? Well, I mean, did it try to press China but failed? Or and uh, uh, what uh, the United States? What did the United States manage to achieve by threatening China in this case? I think the interesting thing about this is that it, what this indicates, and maybe we shouldn't make too much of it uh, at this point, but what this at least gestures towards is the the collapse of the the 
Anglo-American petrodollar hegemony paradigm that was instituted by Kissinger back in the 1970s in the uh, secret agreements with uh, the OPEC countries. I think that really this this represents a a, a huge loss of of power on the geopolitical stage that uh, the U.S. and the EU aren't really able to affect significant uh, sanctions that will really uh, hurt Iran. And in some ways, this might even further strengthen and embolden the uh, the Ahmadinejad administration, because if they're able to successfully get around these sanctions and, and to st- continue their exports or even increase them to places like China, Japan, India, what this does is really uh, enable them to get off of the system that, that really depended on the EU and US uh, trade at all. So, so what this does is, in fact, actually strengthen uh, Iran in some way. So I think that this actually was, was biting off more than could be chewed by, uh, by the US. And uh, and what it starts to gesture towards is is really the breakdown of, of that old paradigm where the U.S. was able to dictate things like this on an international scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite being threatened by U.S. sanctions, China did introduce the oil imports from Iran. And can we say that Iran, with its natural resources, is now more important partner for China than the United States of America? And in other words, economic needs prevail over political disputes. Well, I think we shouldn't downplay the importance of uh, China-U.S. business relations at this point. I think it's still a very, very important market for China right now for uh, to to have that market in the U.S. to ship its goods to. So I don't think that this is going to be an all-out trade war or that that step towards it. But it is, at any rate, uh, an indication that China still continues to be an extremely resource-hungry country and is doing its best to try to uh, secure those resources uh, from places like Africa and also from the Middle East in any way that it can. And I think that's something that looking out a decade or two decades or even further out into the future will become more important, as I think China is really trying to establish some sort of um, self-sufficiency without having to rely on that American trade. But at the moment, I think it's still too dependent on American business uh, to, to be able to throw that out entirely. Mm-hmm. But, well, uh, the United States has con- constantly urged China to support sanctions against Iran. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. imposes quotas and tariffs uh, on the import of Chinese goods in order to protect its own market. And do you think this, well, so-called double standard policy has a strong effect on China-U.S. relations? It certainly does, and I think it goes to show the the lack of diplomatic leverage that America has in this case. Because they are maintaining those double standards, they don't really have a lot to offer in the way of China when they are asking for for things like uh, the boycott of Iranian oil. If there was some some playing with the, the the sanctions against Chinese imports, for example, if they were playing with that or that was on the table diplomatically, that might be one thing. But what we've seen so far is that really America is asking for a one-way uh, cut, really, on the Chinese side, that they should just try to cut out these, this, this very important Iranian oil import. And I think that that means that they, they don't really have a lot of diplomatic leverage at this point. And, uh, and that ultimately is going to drive China further away from the U.S. in this position rather than towards them. So I'm not really sure what the, uh, the long-term strategy here, if there is a strategy at play for the Americans, I think it's more about uh, trying to basically uh, get as much concessions as they can without giving anything. And as anyone who's, uh, who's familiar with the, how diplomacy works knows, that's not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose that's all I wanted to ask you. Well, thank you very much again. No problem. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Corbett. And have a nice day. You too. Bye bye.
why we say Chinese culture is different is Chinese culture is quite inclusive. Every different ideas when you join the social system, you have to find your own place, adjust yourself to the place the society gives to you. That is why the problems exist only when people are young, when the authority or when we say the society allow them to speak, to to shape the society. But when they grown up, they have to make choice to be socialized or still to be yourself, stick to yourself. Uh, I think many people they can be famous just because they follow their own heart and stick into their own way on their own. Tr- Keep on their own tracks, but most of the others, who used to be quite radical, are common people. No. The social culture and the system is different. In America, they encourage you, they encourage individuality. You should realize your dream. But in China, we see if uh, the country's stability and prosperity rely on everybody. It's a collective way of thinking, not individualism. How do you think that will spill over into the, is the wider economic sphere? Because obviously, as China starts to exert itself more internationally through its, its economic power, <coughs> will, that, will that philosophy lead to a difference in, in the way that that power is wielded? For example, in the 20th century, we saw the American paradigm of international global superpower exerting its force through the control of economics and a military control predicated on economic control with the, the, the dollar hegemony, the mm. petrodollar, the various ways that the, the world system has been manipulated to favor the American model. But as China grows, is there a possibility for a founding of a, a new paradigm that's based on cooperation rather than, than military dominance? Well, the facts prove it already. China develops in a different way from the West. Maybe we draw our many lessons from the West, but we have our own characteristics. Uh, you are talking about China's uh, looks for the outside world, but what I'm, my answer is China's looks to the outside world, it, it is decided by how Chinese government deal with its domestic problems. Yeah, for the West, for the outsiders, China is a strong economic power now already. But for the insiders, uh, y- y- you should know we have 1.3 billion people. And there are over 150,000 of them still living in life less than $1 a day. But there is also more than 60 million Chinese people living life as rich as French, as Americans. So the income gap, the social structure in China, makes it unique even when the authority consider to exert its influence overseas, they cannot afford to ignore its domestic necessity to reform, to streamline everything, to solve the problem. So, there's a two sides of China. First, the size China want to show to the outside world is same by you as Western, as foreigners. But the insiders, we know, how to, chi- how to China solve its domestic problems uh, have a great influence on its way to exert its overseas influence. I can give you an example that China has a lot of uh, construction projects, oil trade with uh, African pe- countries, and we have a lot of workers there. A couple of days ago, the workers was uh, 
was caught by local people, abducted by local forces in Egypt, maybe used to be in Libya, in, in the other African countries. This was not a problem for China before, because 10 years ago we, don't have, we didn't have so many workers working overseas. And this, po- this uh, also means a new problem for Chinese people at home. A couple of years ago, we think it is common cooperation. It's an equal cooperation. This is diplomatic words between China and African countries. But now we realize China is like the other Western country. They join in the development of African continent. Yeah, there are a good relationship between us. Historical uh, legacy from Mao's from 1960s, 1970s. But now, whether the African countries regard China still as a brother or an equal competitor in the market. So when we have more workers overseas, we should think about how we protect our interest. We don't, although we don't have a military base overseas till now, but China has a lot of construction projects, has own trade programs with the other countries. The workers' problems remind us that China should have many challenge, new challenges. Um, maybe Chinese authority will learn the lessons by solving the problem one by one. In this process, China maybe may learn something from the West, but China, Chinese decision makers, all to me, it seems to me, always remind themselves, be cautious that we should not be totally westernized, otherwise we will lose everything we have. Well, that's, that's an interesting point because one of the things that I think is probably difficult for, for non-Americans like myself, I'm mm. Canadian, mm. but uh, something that's difficult for non-Americans to understand about American <coughs> mentality is that they've been the, the center of the world, the global superpower for so long that it becomes a siege mentality that everything that, that comes, that might be a change to that system is a threat to them and, and they, they perceive it as a threat to their national security and a threat to their, their, their population. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everything that happens is a threat, so they have to do right. Do you see that as a possibility? Is that is that something that could happen to change in the Chinese psyche to, to start to see more problems in the world as, as threats to China itself? I can tell you that China also feels threat from our competitors, from the other Western countries, developed countries. But we Chinese people feel the threat in a different way. As what you as as you do in the West, because threat is a threat in the West. But in China, even in a crisis time, Chinese culture teaches us we should find opportunity through crisis. Because in Chinese language, crisis is translated into Wei Ji, made up two characters. The first one Wei means dangerous. The second one Ji means opportunity. So everything is balanced. Looking back into Chinese history, you can say China used to be a big power in the world history for 2,000 years, maybe something like that. But China has never used its military strength or hegemony to enslave any other country, including the neighboring smaller countries. At that time, we call it the tributary system. You pay our tribute, you 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 give the central kingdom gift, I give you much more gift in return. The relationship between big country and smaller country was maintained in this way for 2,000 years. 
Before Columbus found the continent America, there is a Chinese uh, official who lead a big uh, ship boats, uh, very big boats, ships, down to the eastern Africa even. For three times or two times, maybe. They just trade with local people. They don't conquer. Although China walks into a modern society now, this kind of uh, philosophy are deeply ingrained into Chinese people. Uh, so when China rise up, maybe in the future, it is a complement for current international order. They will not change it, considering that it takes a lot, long time, will take long time for China to be just equal with the West, not higher than the West. There's no such thing higher or lower. If you come to economic reason, there's higher or lower, but in cultural terms, the coexistence, that is what we Chinese people believe in. The, the, the interaction between different cultures means we can live longer. I can give you a vivid story. Japan used to be an eastern country, totally east. Now it's westernized. But you can find also the Eastern culture exists everywhere in Japan, right? The Chinese scholar think about this problem very well. One of them came back, came down to a conclusion, interesting conclusion. 100 years ago, when the Western power came to Japan, the Japanese people start to welcome foreign culture. They treated foreign culture like your clothes. When you choose your clothes, you can find this one is fit for me, so I put it on. But without clothes, I'm still myself. This is how Jap- Japan is westernized. But for China, we don't treat Western culture or foreign culture as clothes. We treat them as food. We just pick the food we want to eat. When we eat it, we digest it. It becomes part of my body. So that is why Chinese, China can become fat or thin sometimes in history. But you can still say, this is China. This, there's no clothes outside. May, does it make sense to you? So in the future, Chinese still will talk, uh, follow the way it absorbs or interact with the Western cultures. That is why it's very difficult for the U.S. politicians you mentioned first in the question to think about, to deal with China with the way they deal with the other cultures. Kissinger, John Kissinger wrote a book on China. Henry Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger, yeah. It's a very interesting book. It says, China China deals with the world uh, like uh, playing Wei Qi. Wei Qi is uh, chess, but chess is not like international chess. The chess is Black, black one, white one, you encircle the other one, then you win. But for the international chess, it's just a face-to-face fight. You solve the problem with one fight. But for Chinese, that kind of Wei Qi, you build up your advantage gradually. And you also, it takes time for you to lose a battle, to give you time to change your strategy. Yeah. Okay, well, that's extremely interesting, so the idea of ingesting culture and, and making it part of yourself. Mm-hmm. Because one of the, uh, the, the main ways in which American culture has, has or America itself has, has used its, its 
military and economic might is through its its cultural imperialism and its use of right. Hollywood and all of that right. to, to sell the idea of the West in, in America. How has that shaped or influenced Chinese society? And, and is it, it, it can it be digested? Can can that be, become part of Chinese culture? This is a very big and interesting question. After Qing Dynasty collapsed, China Chinese people, especially the elite, feel nervous in heart. It's kind of nervous has been reflected by two activities. One of the activity is called westernized activity. It is sponsored by the Qing emperor families. Uh, the court found why China lost the battle in the two opium war against the West because we don't have uh, gun boats, we don't have machines. In that activity, China started buying, importing machines to making guns. But five years, ten years later, China still find it difficult to catch up the West. We should learn some culture things. That is why the second activity took place. It is organized by the scholars. The scholar found we should have a, we only have Chinese studies. It's about literature, reciting old lines, poems, but we, we didn't have science and technology in Chinese history. The ideas going down into Chinese history, then they came to the conclusion we should learn physics, chemistry, mathematics, engineering, law, something, economics. So they built up new schools. They reformed Chinese languages. This second activity has not ended till now. Although there are many turning points through the past 100 years, the one turning point is 1919. There's a called uh, Maze of Faiths. It's happening in Maze of Faiths of 1919 uh, movement. Peking University students took the street to protest. Uh, because it's triggered by international relationship problems with Japan and Germany. The First World War ended at that time. But Chinese people have two new concepts, democracy and science. At that time, we call it Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy from the West. They say, uh, we should not only build up railways, but we should consider how to organize our government, how to run the country. And this activity has been carried on until New China's founded. At that time, uh, China regarded Russia, Soviet Union, as a teacher. But before 1949, a country, a country ruled by Chiang Kai-shek regarded the West, especially the U.S., close allies with China at that time, as a teacher. But after Mao Zedong died in 1976, China, Deng Xiaoping visited America and Southeast Asia. He realized that there are many things we can learn from the West. So in the 1980s, we called the, the popular culture came to China, television came to China, Coca-Cola uh, came to China. So we called honeymoon between China and the United States again before the 1989 story. So America became Chinese teacher in Chinese scholars' heart again, educated intellectuals' heart again. But in the 1990s, although in, in terms of popular culture, we're still influenced by America. We watch Hollywood movies. We, we add fast food. But the diplomatic relation between the two countries cold. It's a paradox time for Chinese people and even for Chinese authority. I think 1990s give us a 10 years time 
to rethink how we deal with Americans' influence. But when times draw on the 20, join, <clears throat> going the 21st century, especially after the 911 terrorist attack, Americans' power is palpable, is obvious everywhere in the country, uh, in the world. Um, students started going to study in America in flocks, tens of thousands of students going to the West, to the U.S., the largest destination for Chinese students. Even for the bankrupted, uh, even for the corrupted Chinese officials, they have their families, parents, uh, children in the United States and Canada. That is why American became, we call it, uh, the relationship like between China, Chinese people and American people or in our ideas is like a boyfriend and girlfriend, lover's friend. Not too far away, not too close, but we cannot, uh, depart from the influenced America. But we always remind ourselves to, to, to be ourselves. To, yeah, when you have a love affair with a girl, with a man, you have to be yourself. That is why you are valuable for each other. I'm not sure whether this can answer your question, Americans' influence on China through history. Uh, today, uh, in appearance, for you can say Chinese young people, they wear jeans, they're westernized. But when you talk to them, talk about some serious issues concerned with national interest or national pride, we see patriotism, something like that. They are very clear in their mind. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome back. Of course, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You've been listening to Corbett Report Radio, hopefully, for the past hour as we dipped into the highlights of my trip to China and some of the interviews I conducted there. Once again, I am working on this Chinese documentary project, and uh, I'll let you know when it's finished. Hopefully, it won't turn into a... a uh, Axel Rose uh, Chinese democracy type project where it takes a decade for it to come out. But at any rate, um, I will keep you updated on that. And as I say, I think China is truly the nexus and focus of 21st century uh, geopolitics. So once again, I think it behooves us to come to a greater understanding of that country and its people. On that note, uh, we're going to wrap up this uh, broadcast and this week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. I'd like to once again thank you all for tuning in over the past week and hope you enjoyed the broadcasts. And uh, once again, some interesting conversations lined up for next week, so I hope you'll join me then. Earlier this week, I was also talking about the new server from CorbettReport.com, and I've gotten several emails from people out there, and uh, thank you for doing that and for letting me know how the download speeds on the new server are going. And I've, uh, I'm pleased to announce that I would say about 95% of the emails I've gotten have been, uh, have either said that the new servers are as fast as before or even faster. And I myself have found that the servers are even faster than before. There are some momentary glitches here and there where the download speeds are incredibly slow. But other than that, I think the servers are up and running. So until further notice, I think we're going to go with these servers and continue using them. And since they are free, that is a definite plus. So thank you once again to EuroVPS.com for donating that. And uh, people out there can check them out if they're interested in web hosting for themselves. 
So on that note, uh, once again, I'd just like to remind everyone out there that the Corbett Report is listener-supported media, and without your support out there, I could not do all of this. So once again, thank you to all of those people who have ordered a copy of one of the DVDs that I put out at corbettreport.com support, or who have gone there to sign up for the subscriber newsletter, which once again comes out on a weekly basis, and every week contains my editorial for the International Forecaster, as well as some recommended reading and viewing and discounts on all the DVDs. This week's uh, forecaster editorial is going to be about the global warming myth and how uh, weather is not climate unless it's hot outside. And and I've got a lot of interesting things to say about that. A lot of interesting news has been coming out and a lot of people who you wouldn't expect to be turning against the warmest myth are turning against the warmest myth. So uh, some interesting pieces of that puzzle. I hope you'll join me for that editorial. Once again, you can subscribe to the Corbett Report newsletter for as little as 100 Japanese yen per month. That's about a dollar and some change per month in U.S. dollars. And it truly does help to keep this broadcast going. So uh, so I do once again want to uh, send out my appreciation to all of you out there who support me. And of course, there are other ways to support this broadcast simply by letting people know about the information, which is always the most important thing. Once again, we can't do this without affecting the only revolution that matters, the revolution of the mind. And that comes from you guys out there helping to wake up people in your in your neighborhood in your locality people that you know people that you correspond with just inserting truth and uh, the knowledge of freedom into your conversations goes a long way so on that note we're going to wrap things up once again i would like to thank you all for tuning in for tonight's broadcast and hope to talk to you all again next week here on republic broadcasting until then thank you all for listening and take care